This is The Natural Laboratory, a podcast exploring science for San Francisco Bay Area National Parks. I'm John Cannon. There are worse places to live than the coast of Point Reyes National Seashore, 30 miles north of San Francisco, if you're a sea lion. The cool waters support many species of fish, octopus, and squid that top the list of these noisy characters' favorite prey. And the weather's relatively nice if you have a layer of blubber and a fur coat that stays warm when it's wet. It's chilly at times, but rarely too hot. There are lots of places to rest, sandy beaches, rocky outcroppings, and even the occasional weather buoy. But every fall, the waters around Point Reyes get a little more dangerous. From the open ocean, great white sharks make their way to the coast. They're on the hunt for food. And pinnipeds, the group that includes sea lions and their cousins, harbor seals and elephant seals, carry a nice ribbon of energy-packed blubber, making them an ideal source of nourishment for a hungry 1,500-pound predator. I recently spent some time with a team of scientists studying sharks near the mouth of Tamales Bay, the northern tip of the park. I found out that great whites aren't always easy to find, and sometimes they're preoccupied with other things. It was pretty clear that the first shark we saw wasn't at all concerned with us, so he had to go after the shark. Um, yeah, so we just, we just had a, basically just a pile of water that had some red color to it, and I guess it was an attack. That's Taylor Chapel. He's a graduate student at the University of California, Davis, and the group's leader here at Point Reyes. In four years studying sharks here most days each fall, this is the first evidence of an attack Chapel has seen out here. When the team first saw the blood in the water, they raced the boat to the spot to find only a flash of fins and the bloody aftermath quickly dissipating in the churning water. Looks like it was a sea lion just because the sea lions don't float once they get chomped on. Elephant seals or harbor seals will float on the surface because they have a lot more blubber. But the, the sea lions unfortunately sink, so we don't, uh, can't really tell where the animal is. Or if it, and it doesn't bring the sharks to the surface, obviously. So they don't, don't stay up. That's one of the challenges all shark researchers run into. See, unlike whales, sharks and other fish have gills and don't have to come to the surface to breathe. But as this attack illustrates, it's often where they come to find their air-breathing prey. So to learn more about sharks, Chapel and his assistants have a few strategies to bring the sharks up from the depths. The sharks live giant cash. While cash's crooning might not be the most effective or scientific tact, a sea lion-shaped decoy made of carpet stitched around a buoy usually does the trick. It sits bobbing in the water about 30 meters behind our stationary boat. And the idea is that we attract you know, a shark to the surface just using that visual display. You know, We don't have to go through the whole process of chumming. Um, we don't do any chumming or you know, throwing blood or anything in the water. Instead, they rely on the shark's innate attraction to the decoy, an instinct hardwired into the shark's brain by millions of years of evolution. It's that instinct that tells the shark that this black object about four feet long with flippers and floating at the surface just might make a tasty meal. So once an animal comes up to the decoy, we, we shoot photos of it because each of the, the dorsal fins of a white shark, the trailing edge of it, is, is basically like a fingerprint so we can ID an individual shark from that. So we'll take photos of that and then reel the decoy towards the boat. Um, as the decoy gets closer to the boat, we use an underwater video camera and take uh, shots of the animal trying to get sex and any more uh, basically distinct markers on the animal. And once we feel like we have enough information that we can ID an individual, then we'll put a tag in. Those tags provide biologists with a host of information. When a tagged shark is in the area, a small receiver on the boat tips the team off to the fact that it's close, even if there's no evidence at the surface. And the receiver registers the tag's unique number, so Chapel can actually identify that individual shark. 
By correlating its number with photos and data from the past, you can tell how big that shark is, its sex, and the last time he saw it. Special satellite tags also provide scientists with information about the movements of sharks on a larger scale. These revelations allow Chapel and his colleagues to home in on the mysterious movements between areas like Point Reyes and places far out in the Pacific where many of these sharks aggregate. This effort involves researchers who study other species in the ecosystem with similar monitors placed at various locations along the coast. And what's nice is that these monitors are present uh, for a number of different species. So they have these monitors for salmon, for sturgeon, for sharks, and for you know, a whole list of other species. So in a collaboration, we can all get information about our animals being at somebody else's array of stations. So you don't, we don't necessarily have to put 5,000 of these listening stations around. We can just collaborate with other researchers. The data collected by all of these researchers will be compiled into a much larger 10-year undertaking known as the Census of Marine Life. This project aims to catalog the, quote, diversity and abundance of life in the oceans, unquote, looking piece by piece at this grand web of ocean life. For now, Chapel will continue researching the strand of that web he knows the best, the white sharks of the northern Pacific. And right on cue, a sail-shaped dorsal fin appears next to the decoy. This shark, an untagged female just a few feet shorter than the boat we're on, is inquisitive, but it's not the violent eruption of activity I had expected. Chapel says this cautious behavior is more typical than the bite first, ask questions later approach that white sharks seem to be notorious for. You know, it's not this horrific attack scene like you, you know you see in the in the movies or you know they they, they put on Discovery Channel. It's usually pretty pretty mellow. Like you know, she came up once, just past the decoy, and then did a, did a circle underwater, and then came up and just kind of nudged it to check it out. Very rarely do you get them that they come up and they, you know, attack the decoy or even even bite it. And it's, it's pretty rare that that happens. It's usually really a kind of a, a mellow interaction. I guess as mellow as you can be being 16 feet long. But mellow is not the word to describe the great white's effect on its environment and us. As an apex predator, this species is a critical component of a functioning and healthy ocean ecosystem. The World Conservation Union has listed white sharks as vulnerable, and they are likely impacted by climate change, overfishing, and other changes brought about by humankind. But the truth is, we know very few basic details about their lives, where they go to breed, the size of the population, and how long they live, to name just a few. So we're just beginning to understand what must be done to protect this remarkable ocean hunter. These questions only make the research that Chapel and others have taken on that much more important as we begin to uncover the extent of our own interdependence with the world's oceans. For the Pacific Coast Science and Learning Center in Point Reyes National Seashore, I'm John Cannon.